I think at its core, success to me is not based on events that happen or based on results. Success to me is because you have no control or very little control of what comes at you very often. So to me, success is how you respond to what is thrown at you, knowing how to be when the waves are coming hard at you. That to me is a successful person. And it applies not only to entrepreneurship and to the recruitment space, it applies to everything. It applies to how you conduct yourself throughout life. So that's, to me, the most important aspect of all. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. Sid here, Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Jay Rosenzweig. Jay is a fellow Canadian. He grew up in Montreal, like I did, although he lives in Toronto now, among other places, and he's one of the most interesting people that I have spoken to and had these great conversations with on the SIDCast. He's done all sorts of different things. They have one thing in common, which is once again, somebody who is trying to change the world and really make it into a better place. He is one of the people that my former student and previous guest on the SIDCast, Jacques-Philippe Piverger, recommended to me. And I mentioned that last week in the Shelley Zalis episode. In fact, Shelley and Jay know each other very well. When I was recording my podcast with Shelley and she asked, who else is coming on? I said, well, you know, I'm soon going to record one with Jay, with Jay Rosenbach. So, oh, that's so cool. He's coming over for dinner in a couple of weeks. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it? The other thing about Jay is he actually grew up in Saint Laurent, which is a neighborhood in Montreal where my wife grew up. And I think they have some overlapping friends and well, they were in similar neighborhoods and they know some of the same people, which is one of these small world types of things. Jay is a internationally renowned social impact entrepreneur and he's trained as a lawyer. He's a founder of Rosenzweig and Company. He's an expert on designing, building, and attracting world-class teams. The Rosenzweig Company started off mostly as a search firm, but now does all kinds of other work related to leadership and development. He works with lots and lots of entrepreneurs and is a venture capitalist in his own right. He advises several leading-edge tech companies across North America and actually in other parts of the world as well. And that's a pretty full plate when you think about that, because not only does he advise them, does he support them, he also helps them build their own management teams as kind of small startup companies. But he's also, well, for his entire professional career, been immersed in global human rights causes, really for well over two decades. And he's been internationally recognized as well for the annual Rosenzweig Report on Equality, which he's published for the past 17 years. This annual report is a research study of the role of women in Canadian business and how senior they become and what positions they have. And year after year, they are able to track whether there's improvement or not. And we'll talk briefly about that in the podcast. And it turns out as maybe you might expect, there's still a huge underrepresentation of women in senior leadership positions in Canadian and U.S. companies. This report has gotten a tremendous amount of renown 
and has been endorsed and has had contributions from leaders and personalities such as Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook, Mark Cuban, of course, who is very well known, many CEOs and board chairs of major companies and other politicians and business leaders. He's also the chair of the board of Erwin Kotler's Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. Erwin Kotler, professor, legendary professor at McGill University Law School, was really one of the great mentors of Jay's life and I think is one of the reasons why Jay is such a contributor and mentor to so many others today. He sits on a number of other purpose-driven boards that support causes ranging from healthcare to youth empowerment, refugee protection, and anti-gun violence. Jay is an outspoken advocate against anti-Semitism, racism, and all forms of hate and discrimination. And in fact, in his investing philosophy, he invests in businesses that have missions to foster a world that gives equal opportunities for all, including greater access to education, capital, and mobility. He's very well known. He's been in the press a lot. He's one of these people that he kind of shows up in a lot of places where other interesting people are, and he's advised so many of them. So it was a real treat to kind of get that introduction to Jay, and then we really hit it off when we were talking, and we have things in common as well, and ended up having just this great conversation about leadership, about life, about people, about human rights, about venture capital. I mean, it's pretty wide ranging. And I don't know if I mentioned this already, but he's also a songwriter who has been active with a bunch of uh, pretty well-known people as well. So uh, there's not a lot that Jay Rosenzweig doesn't try to do, isn't actually really good at. And as he says in the podcast, when there are opportunities, he believes in going after those opportunities and absolutely recommends and mentors younger people to do exactly the same. So let's start our conversation with Jay Rosenzweig on the SIDCAST. Welcome to the SIDCAST. This is Sid Finkelstein, and it's a pleasure to be here today with Jay Rosenzweig. Hi, Jay. Hi, good to see you, Sid. Good to see you. Thank you. Thank you for joining. Discerning listeners may pick up an accent maybe from you and maybe from me as well. And that, of course, is Montreal, where we're both from. And in fact, when we were talking the other day, we discovered that you grew up in the same neighborhood as my wife, which is kind of a small world story. That's right. But I want to start with the early days a little bit. I want to know what life was like for you as a kid growing up. What do you remember from those early days? What was it like? As you had mentioned, uh, I grew up in uh, Montreal in a city called Ville Saint Laurent. We grew up in a duplex, which my father owned. He rented the upstairs as well as the downstairs. He was an entrepreneur and nothing wasteful at all about the business that he ran. He built an office out of a piece of the garage in our basement. He was an electrical contractor. I had very, very loving parents. My mom was amazing. She ran the home and I'm the youngest of three children. We grew up in a Jewish traditional home. I studied at a parochial school called Talmud Torah and went on to uh, its high school called Herzliya. And we had a really nice childhood, really loving and caring and supportive uh, parents. Lots of friends around on the street. We played street hockey and touch football and all the rest of it. And it was largely a really nice childhood where I felt a lot of my grounding. Yeah. And you're probably still friends with some of those kids on the block. I am. Absolutely. Uh, that's this, uh, uh, that's what, a beautiful uh, thing. Yeah. It's what happens. And, you know, a lot of people don't grow up that way anymore because of the, the modern world. And it's always interesting for people to hear. Yeah, you know, and there are places like that, of course, still in North America. Mm-hmm. When we talked just a bit earlier, you shared a story about your mom because she was a bit older when you were born. And it's a powerful story. Maybe you could share it again. 
Well, my mom had pyloric stenosis, a condition which is not overly uncommon, but requires surgery because basically, as I understand it, the muscle that food goes through is enlarged in cases of individuals who had pyloric stenosis. And if it's not fixed, what basically happens is uh, when a baby will drink their milk or whatever, that'll throw up immediately. But at the time that she had it, I think the surgery was a lot more, um, let's say, invasive and risky than it is today. My daughter actually inherited it from her and had to have surgery, which was, I think, a lot less complicated than back in my mom's day. But thank God she made it. And I'm not sure if this is related to that or not, but she was told that she wouldn't be able to have children, as I understand it. And so when she uh, married uh, my dad, she adopted a boy and two years later adopted a girl. And then when she was 37 years old, she was feeling a little bit different, a little bit funny and went to the doctor who let her know that she was pregnant. And she basically explained that that's impossible. But he said, <laughs> to the contrary, it's possible and you're pregnant and, <laughs> and hence my birth. And so that's kind of the story of how I yeah. came into the world and my brother and sister are just incredible people. And of course, I was welcomed into the home, <laughs> thankfully. And the rest is, as they say, history. Yeah, that's a great story. I'm not sure what it is, but you do hear these stories, not of the medical condition necessarily, the specifics of it, but sometimes when a couple has trouble conceiving and they adopt a child and not that long afterwards, she becomes pregnant. Now, I'm just saying it. I have no idea what the data are. So it's one of these things. You yeah. Do. I guess because it's such a great story, you hear it. I do hear oh, that. Probably. I do hear that anecdotally as well. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I guess in certain cases, it takes the pressure off in a way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, who knows? Well, maybe. But it's also one of those things about life that when you hear a story like that, you, re you kind of remember it's a happy story. Right. You like the story. Right. Yeah. But it means we don't usually hear the other side of the story or the story where it doesn't always work out that way. I think that's way. right. You know. Yeah. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit because, you know, you grew up in Montreal, you um, went to school, you, uh, you applied to law school, McGill Law. And I think it was it the case you didn't get in or you thought you didn't get in at first. Yeah, that's an interesting story as well. And it's actually a thread that one can trace throughout my life and career. And that's the desire constantly to self-improve and to seek out constructive criticism and make that call and not to hesitate to do so. Because once one engages with individuals out there in the world, you never know where it will lead. So basically, I did a philosophy degree at McGill and decided I wanted to go to law school. And McGill was my number one choice. But I applied to a number of other law schools just in case. And the summer when I was waiting to hear back from law schools, I actually backpacked through Europe with a friend of mine and my parents were at home taking in the mail. And I got into a number of law schools pretty early, including University of Ottawa, but I was put on a wait list at McGill. And lo and behold, my parents also uh, had to go away for a bit and they asked my neighbors to take in the mail specifically asking them to uh, keep a keen eye out for anything coming in from McGill. So long story short, my neighbors take in the mail. They call my parents where they were to let them know that Jay didn't get into McGill. My parents relay the message to me while I'm backpacking in Europe. I uh, cut my uh, trip short, decided to go to University of Ottawa. My parents were so kind as to, in the meantime, hustle their way to Ottawa and get me an apartment. When I get back, I decide I'm going to call the dean of McGill Law School. Her name was Rosalie Jukier and explain to her my situation that I didn't get into her law school, which is perfectly fine. But I wondered if she wouldn't mind if I came by her office 
so that she can open the file and explain to me why I didn't get in, just for my own self-edification. And she graciously agreed. So I decided to go to her office downtown Montreal. And I don't know what I was thinking at the time because I had just gotten back from Europe. I had long hair, a messy beard. I had cut off jeans with frills coming out of them and a white tank top. And here I am walking into the dean of the law school's office. And anyway, I walk in, she opens my file and she says to me, who told you you didn't get in? So I explained to her the whole story. I was away. My parents were away. My neighbors got the mail. She said, well, I don't know what letter they read, but you did not get in. You're still on the wait list. And I'm not really supposed to interview candidates. But while you're here, tell me a little bit about yourself. And I did, and we ended up having a really great conversation. And the program at McGill gives you two law degrees in four years. It's both common law and civil law. Basically, the Quebec system, just like the Louisiana system and half of the law systems uh, across Europe, the Napoleonic Code would be civil law. And then common law is based on precedent, the British law. So you could get in through the civil law or the common law stream. So she said to me, which stream would you want if you did get in? And I said, well, ideally common law. She said to me uh, in response, common law would be impossible, but I could probably get you into civil if we were to admit you. So I said, well, look, I'll take anything. Next day, phone rings. It's Dean Jukier on the line congratulating me that I had gotten in to the law school and that she, in fact, found a space for me in common law. So there's a really cool lesson there, obviously, about calling up, going after it, asking questions, looking for feedback. Were you always that way, even younger? I mean, there are a lot of people listening and they're saying, wow, he was brave (laughs) to go and do that. I mean, I can imagine just being upset that I didn't get in and hell with them. You did quite the opposite. For some reason, I always had that in me and it's permeated throughout my educational life and my career life. I have a number of other stories that I could tell you to that effect including how I developed a relationship with the great international human rights advocate, Erwin Kotler. It began with that kind of notion as well. Was he one of your professors at McGill? He was. So how did that connection and relationship begin? Yeah, so Professor Kotler was by far the most well-known and prominent professor in the law school. By then, he had already been the lead counsel to Natan Sharansky, who was, of course, a political prisoner in the former Soviet Union. He was counsel to Nelson Mandela concurrently. So he had a pretty high profile at the time. And what we had early on in law school was this thing called moot court, where we'd have to prepare a pretend appeal case and plead it to a panel of judges. It's a nerve wracking situation for students in the best of times. And in my situation, I walk into the room prepared to make my arguments. And who walks into the room as one of the key judges, but Professor Kotler, you didn't know that was going to You didn't happen. know who you would get. So he walks in. I begin to make my arguments. And in his characteristic sense, he puts his glasses on his forehead. And as I'm talking, he's taking notes furiously. And I'm looking at him and I'm wondering, what is this guy thinking? What is he doing? Like, <laughs> I just wonder what's going on in his mind. And when I completed my remarks in his typically gentlemanly fashion, he Uh, commended me for what I had done right, and proceeded to list 10 things that I could have done better, each point interrelated to the next, which is also very characteristic of him. And I was in complete shock and awe. And I determined right then and there, this is a guy I can learn from and not just about the law. So I went up to him afterwards and I asked if he could be so kind as to spend time with me in his office to dive deeper in terms of how I could have done better. And it became the beginning really of a lifelong friendship and mentorship. 
And if you fast forward to today, of course, I'm the chair of his International Human Rights Board called the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. So it's just another case of where my curiosity drove me to try and improve and self-improve and learn more from an individual. And in turn, it helped to solidify a really, really important relationship in my life. Exactly. I, I love the theme. It's actually something I've counseled boards of directors. If there's one message to get, it's you need curiosity and courage. That that's kind of your job. And that's a different context than what you're talking about, although you've been and continue to be on many boards, so it applies to lots of things you're doing. Mm-hmm. But those are differentiators. You would think they wouldn't be, right? But not everybody's willing or able. I don't actually think it's that hard to be curious or courageous. Some people are better at it than others, but it's not that hard. Yeah, you it's know. kind of surprising, I think, for a lot of individuals. And I coach a lot of individuals as well. Ego gets in the way and defense mechanisms prevent individuals from actually seeking out criticism because I think very often people are afraid it will hurt them to receive criticism. They may not have, let's say, the thick skin, which would allow them to open themselves up. Do you think that's because of a lack of confidence or some degree of insecurity? Is that what's kind of behind people not really wanting to hear about their flaws from somebody? I think it's rooted in a deep sense of insecurity, which unfortunately a lot of people do have, really worrying about what others might think of them when in fact These other individuals still think the same thing of them without them sharing and also allowing themselves to be too affected by external factors and external forces. Because I take criticism in an objective way, if you will, as a means of self-improvement. Even if I receive irrational criticism, I don't let that affect me. So it's a matter of really going more deeply into yourself to understand that really the only thing you can control 100% is how you're feeling inside of yourself and your own internal inner engineering, if you will. All the other stuff is about external self-improvement, and it shouldn't really affect how you're feeling. It's actually a really kind of interesting juxtaposition of two somewhat opposite skill sets, because you've got to be completely open. You want to absorb those lessons, those ideas, those critiques, but at the same time, you got to have some thick skin to be able to take it and not let it get to you. The academic equivalent comes through in the review process when you send articles to academic journals because you get the reviews back and of course they're going to come up with all sorts of things that can be improved and that's always the case and so you have to listen to them you have to respond to it you have to really pay attention to it but you can't also let it dominate you because if you started to believe all the negative press so to speak that comes from the review process in lots of other ways I mean how do you get up in the morning you can't so it's an interesting thing isn't it about uh, kind of opposite skills. I agree. I choose to look at both the negative and positive as ways to build and to become a better human being. So either way you're gaining is how I look at it. So getting into uh, McGill Law School, especially because of, well, probably for lots of reasons, but especially because you met Professor Cutler, it changed your life. I think it's fair to say, you know, when we look back at a career or a lifetime, there are these moments and they can go in different ways. And sometimes people take those opportunities or thrive. And other times, you know, it doesn't always work. It's almost a bit of a philosophical kind of take on it. And I know this is something you have thought about and kind of espoused in your own life. So maybe you could share a little bit about, if this is a philosophical question, sure. about how you kind of think about this issue about, you know, doors that are opening and dealing with it and how probably most, not all, because it's definitely not equally distributed opportunities, but most people will have some and some will have quite a few. I believe everybody has opportunities in front of them, and it's just a matter of recognizing these opportunities when they appear and taking advantage of them. Being a very curious person and someone who's always trying to learn, my philosophy has always been 
when you see these windows of opportunity, when you see these cracks in the door, walk through them. And the worst that can happen is these opportunities end up not coming to fruition or not being for you. But I feel that you're better off exploring to the fullest degree the life that's in front of you rather than sitting back and perhaps having regrets. Another example anecdotally of that would be uh, how I met uh, the great humanitarian and basketball player, Dikimi uh, Mutombo, Hall of Fame basketball player, built both a hospital in his mother's name and, and an educational center in his father's name in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So I find him to be a giant, even though he's seven foot three and a giant in terms of physical stature, but in terms of the humanitarian work he does, he's an even greater giant. I happened to meet him NBA All-Star Weekend in Toronto. And when it came to Toronto, each and every uh, NBA All-Star Weekend has a political panel. And the NBA had asked me if I could help them secure Justin Trudeau as one of the key panelists for the political panel. And I tried. Trudeau wasn't available at the time, but his office recommended Christa Freeland, who did a great job. We invited her to come and she did an amazing job. And who was sitting next to me during that event, but uh, Dikimbi Mutombo. And we looked at each other and we realized that we had a lot more in common with each other than our towering height, him being seven foot three and me being five foot nine, and that we should get to know one another and we exchanged business cards. About three weeks later, I'm sitting in my office and the phone rings and in his distinctive voice on the other end of the line, he says to me, Jay, it's Mutombo. I'm going to be in New York tomorrow. That's not too far from Toronto. How about you meet me for dinner? So I had a choice to make. And what I find is with individuals of that stature who have so many demands coming at them and so many requests and so many people wanting to get together with them, if you don't take that opportunity in that very specific moment in time, you'll probably lose the relationship. So the practical thing would have been for me to say, I don't want to spend money on a flight. I've got a full day packed with meetings the next day. It doesn't make sense. I'm not flying to New York for dinner. But I decided that I should go. My instincts told me it would be the right thing to do. We had dinner. We further solidified our relationship. We talked about all kinds of productive ways we could work together. And I've had a, a really beautiful relationship with the Kimby ever since. And I brought him into tech deals I'm working on and uh, I'm helping him with his philanthropic causes. And it's just developed into a really beautiful relationship, which has paid off in so many great ways. That's a great story. You're really a connector, aren't you? It's a better word than networking, I think, which we all get. But there's sometimes an instrumental implication in networking, which is not fair because it's important to do it. And a lot of networking is helping somebody else. But connecting, it's actually a really valuable, uh, I'm not even going to say skill, even though it is, but it's a valuable personality characteristic. It's a good thing. You know, my daughter is only 31 now, but she's a connector. And mostly she got that from her mother, I suspect, more than her father. But nonetheless, it's really fantastic to see. And she does it not because anyone's going to pay her anything, or, but because it's the right thing to do, because she gets pleasure from it. And I don't know what you have in your business card. You could have many things, as we'll talk about. But connector might be as good a summary as any. What do you think? I think so. I derive a lot of pleasure from bringing individuals together and finding ways for them to benefit one another, even if there's no practical benefit to me. But ultimately, there ends up being practical benefits in a lot of cases in any sense, because what happens is if I'm known to be someone who 
is generous with helping others and finding ways to connect people together so that they can in turn make money or derive greater fulfillment. When business opportunities arise, requiring individuals who are well-placed have great relationships, I'm often getting calls to sit on advisory boards and things of that nature because I've developed a reputation as someone who can get you to where you need to be, whether it's from a business development or fundraising or whatever other point of view. So there are practical benefits, but I think the secret sauce is in giving without asking for anything in return. And eventually you'll get the return, probably more so than if you were conducting yourself in more of a transactional way. Yeah, I mean, I find as I get older... There's nothing I need. I get so much enjoyment from helping other people in whatever small way that might be. One of the things I do when I start a new class is I read the resumes. You know, this is business school. So your resumes are there before the first class, kind of classic, right? And so I download them and I read them all. And you see all these connections from people. They probably don't know. They may have worked, you know, in the same country at some point, or they both might have a very similar sport, or they write down, you know, their activities, their hobbies. It's kind of unbelievable the things that 28-year-olds have done. And I make a list. I don't think I'm as thorough as I could, but I make a list. And then I look for an opportunity to say, you know, you should talk to so-and-so because she did something that you might find really interesting. And they look at me like, what? First of all, it's a good technique to read the resumes of students before they walk in the class. Because sure. they know that they can't fool you with anything. <laughs> they know that you're ready for action. That's great. And it further solidifies your credibility and the relationship and rapport with the students that you actually care to yeah. understand their backgrounds, it, which is it, fantastic. It does. And it also speaks to a little lesson I learned about teaching a long time ago. Actually, I learned two critical lessons that I always try to share with you know, newer professors or could be for any teacher or any avenue where you're teaching. One is you got to be yourself. When I started at Dartmouth and the business school, the Tuck School, there were a lot of fantastic teachers, legendary teachers. And I sat in on some of their classes. I wanted to see how they did it. And uh, I quickly realized that's not my style. I can't do exactly what they're doing, but I absorb various things. And But you have to do your own thing. And the second is kind of what you just said. When people believe that you care, You've won the battle uh, right away, even more than credibility. It's just, people call that authenticity. I don't know if that's the right word, but, and I bet that applies to plenty of other areas outside of. Absolutely. Uh, It's something that I take a lot of pride in, uh, in terms of really getting to know a person before I meet with them. They're often pretty surprised that I had done that kind of research. But again, it all boils down to my desire to be a student for life and to learn. You know, if I'm in a, an Uber and I see that the Uber driver is open to conversation, I'm always curious to understand their backgrounds and what makes them tick and all the rest of it. I'm just super curious and I have this thirst for uh, knowledge, which really drives me and excites me. Well, let's kind of dig a little bit deeper down the path because there's so many examples of exactly that. So you shifted from law pretty quickly and you went into the talent business. Why did you do that? Well, for a number of reasons. I actually articled at a law firm that very prominently represented a number of people who were wrongfully convicted of murder, including famous cases like Guy Pomeran and Milgard uh, here in Canada. And I went into criminal law based on my interest in human rights and the charter, which I found fascinating, much more interesting to me than corporate law, which I found kind of boring. 
And I was chosen from amongst the Articling students that year to junior on a murder trial, which was a very daunting experience. I was in a cold sweat for about six weeks. And the entire defense team was myself and a 31-year-old lawyer. And we came back with a not guilty verdict, which is something I'll never forget. It was an extraordinary experience. But I also learned that the day-to-day is pretty rough and it's dirty in a lot of cases on both sides. And I determined that I didn't want to do this over the long term. If you fast forward to today, as I mentioned, I am chairing Erwin Kotler's International Human Rights Board, so I've kept my hand in it in that way. But I also have this entrepreneurial background, and an opportunity presented itself. Again, it's another case of where I saw a potential opportunity and decided what the heck I might as well try. Back in those days, as you'll recall, there were ads in the career section of newspapers. <laughs> yeah, what's that? Half my audience. <laughs> so my wife knew I was thinking of doing something different and she knew I had this business sense innately in me as well in terms of my upbringing, etc. And she saw in the career section an ad which said entertainment company looking for a director of business affairs required 12 years of the practice of law minimum. Please apply to the following recruiting firm. So obviously I was well unqualified. But I thought entertainment, which eventually I got involved in entertainment too, which I think is kind of a cool sector. You know, here's an opportunity to get into business. I'll apply, even though like I'm 11 years unqualified for this role. Yeah, you had one year. Maybe, maybe I'll hustle my, my way in and speak to someone at this recruiting firm because they find people jobs. I didn't know anything about it. Sure enough, I get a call from this recruiting firm saying, we got your resume you don't have nearly enough years of experience to qualify for the job we're looking to fill. Turned out to be IMAX, by the way, was the entertainment company. But you have a really interesting background. We're looking for an associate here. Would you be interested in applying? So I thought, what the heck? I mean, you know, I just got off of a murder trial. What am I going to do recruiting for? But I looked on the website, which websites were new at the time, and I saw like everyone's background seemed so great, like Harvard MBAs and also a bunch of lawyers and whatever. It's a very high-end firm, this boutique firm. I thought I'll apply. I was offered the job. I took it and ended up doing very well in the business pretty quickly. The firm ended up getting bought over by Corn Ferry, the largest recruiting firm in the world. Uh, Great experience for me, young guy, firm was acquired. Suddenly I'm one of the youngest partners globally at the world's largest firm in the world. You know, leveraging off the brand for a few years, life was good, but I saw a number of inefficiencies in the big firm. And given my entrepreneurial DNA, I felt it wasn't really for me. I felt if I broke away and started my own firm to bring much more customized solutions to the table for my clients, that would be a more fulfilling endeavor. So that's what I did. And that was 2004. And I haven't looked back. You know, the vision's been realized. We're doing work now all around the world for some of the world's biggest companies at the top levels. We're helping private equity firms change out leadership to help them achieve their goals. And something that I've gotten deeply involved in over the last five, 10 years is helping founders to scale up their businesses. And it's gotten to the point, and I'm not only helping them with talent strategy and team building, I'm also helping them with things like fundraising and business development and just overall strategic and operational advice, given all the experience and connections I've developed over the years. So it's gotten to the point now where I'm on the advisory board and have shares in like 50, 60 different emerging growth businesses. We've had great exits. We're on the verge of a number of others. So it's been a pretty cool ride. But that sort of was the point of transition and how it all happened. It's not obvious that you go from starting your own firm and it's a successful firm. It's not obvious that that leads to all this work, you know, with startups and founders. 
So how did that happen? Was it kind of one door that opened that worked out pretty cool? And you said, let's do more, or did you gain a reputation as someone that you know people want to talk to? Or how did it happen? Well, I always had a lot of time for entrepreneurs. I have a deep, deep respect for entrepreneurs and what they go through, you know, starting with my father and the people all around me, my father-in-law. Everywhere I look, I see entrepreneurship. For better or for worse, you know, my dad's office was in the home. Dinner time, you know, there's a lot of business talk. So it's kind of in my DNA. So as my business continued to progress, I just began mentoring and helping out founders. And it worked out really successfully in a lot of cases, kind of the advice I was offering them. And the things that I actually enjoy most is helping founders with little nuances. You know, I can help them with business development and get them to the right people and the fundraising and all the rest of it. But I think where I perhaps add most value and this is the feedback I get is uh, when a founder will call me and say, you know, I had a very awkward exchange with my chief financial officer. I'm actually mm-hmm. fuming. Here's what I was thinking of saying. And I kind of talked them off the ledge and say, well, no, you know what? I don't think that would be the right approach in terms of building that long-term relationship. Here's how I might handle it. And in almost all cases, these founders will take my advice. And I'm proud to say very often they're thankful that I cooled down sort of their temperature and brought some rationality to them. So as that continued to happen and there was a pattern developing, word got out. And now I'm probably being presented with five new business ideas a day. I just get unsolicited emails constantly from founders asking if I might advise them or help them with various aspects of their business. But it's essentially about helping them to scale up and stay sane at the same time. Yeah, there's a bit of a uh, kind of psychologist aspect to what you're talking about, I think. For sure. And by the way, it, it ends up as these companies scale, it ends up going into the other bucket of my core talent strategy business because eventually the founder will need a, a chief technology officer and a chief financial officer, even a chief executive officer if they've got enough of a self-awareness to realize that they're not the one to take you know, this $10 million business to $100 million and beyond. So it has some practical benefits for me, even from the point of view of my day-to-day. Do you think there's a specific, I don't know, skill set that is at the heart of both of these. I mean, I understand how they overlap, and it's easy to see that. Mm -hmm. But what makes a great search professional, or maybe it's what makes the entrepreneur, but it's in the context of search. And then what makes uh, someone's great in investing in startups and helping them scale and being kind of a uh, a trusted advisor. I'm looking for the commonality in terms of whether it's a skill set or it's a personality or it's a mindset or what it might be. I think at its core... Success to me is not based on events that happen or based on results. Success to me is because you have no control or very little control of what comes at you very often. So to me, success is how you respond to what is thrown at you, knowing how to be when the waves are coming hard at you. That to me is a successful person. And it applies not only to entrepreneurship and to the recruitment space, it applies to everything. It applies to how you conduct yourself throughout life. So that's, to me, the most important aspect of all. But I would say, like, in business and entrepreneurship and recruitment, the ability to foster really meaningful relationships that are long-lasting and are based on trust really will separate you from most of the pack and uh, make you really an attractive potential partner. But it's all based on the grounding that I described. That's the key. That's the key to a successful life. 
I don't know whether adaptability fully captures what you're talking yeah. about, but it's certainly yeah. part of it. It's almost transcending adaptability mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've been, as you said, you're involved and invested in many, many companies. And some of them are like really kind of cool categories that people hear about a lot, but not too many people really understand, you know, metaverse and NFTs and I guess Web3 as well. And we don't have enough time for an analysis of all of that, but maybe you could say a little bit about what's so special about this. Why is this like such emerging as such a big deal? Because we've seen digital companies, uh, internet companies, they've been going on for not quite forever, but for 40 years. And especially if we go back, you know, 20 years, we get the beginnings of the Googles and the Facebooks and the Amazons and these giants. Yeah. So what's going on in these sectors? Yeah. So you're right. I feel grateful to be involved in many kind of leading edge businesses across a number of sectors. So Hyperloop would be a cool one, uh, which would be a new mode mode of transportation, uh, which would allow one to travel the speed of light, (laughs) which the speed of sound rather, which has enormous implications for our world. And Winston House, which is this beautiful community and venue in Venice Beach for musical artists, very well-known ones and and -and up-and-comers. And the Web3 space, of course, is one that is extremely fascinating. I mean, I'll give you one example of, uh, you mentioned the NFTs, right? Why an NFT might be a powerful tool moving forward. Uh, first of all, it's on the so-called blockchain, which means that the information and data is immovable and incorruptible. Secondly, uh, they have these smart contracts attached to them. So if, for example, you're an artist, my daughter is a painter. I think she's a wonderful painter. But you're an up-and-comer and you're selling your art for $1,000 a piece. And you end up becoming supremely famous. The individual who bought your piece of art for $1,000 may one day be able to sell it for a million dollars or more. And the original artist gets nothing out of it. With the NFT, the ownership is minted on the blockchain, and uh, there's a smart contract attached to it, which could state anything you want, whatever the deal might be. I get 10% of the proceeds of any sale from here on in. So that if Ali's painting sold for a thousand and then sold for a million, she'd be able to benefit from that, which is a significant thing. Musical artists, I don't know the music business intimately, but my understanding is when they sign a deal, a record deal, the record company will, the music company will derive 80% of the revenues from songs, whereas the artist will derive 20%. If they minted a song as an NFT, they would have people who believe in them investing and buying the NFT, first of all. And should that song end up being a success, they would make 80%. And the people who actually believed in them would be able to share in the the other 20%. So it's a reverse, number one. Number two, the artists would be more than happy to share their revenues with individuals who invested in them and believed in them rather than what some artists might call the greedy corporates. Right. So, but those are just a couple of examples, but you can imagine the implications for many other areas of business and areas of walks of life. I think NFTs will end up more than likely being solely uh, tickets. Uh, You won't have paper tickets anymore. Uh, It'll have so many interesting implications, and the NFTs have great utility to them that could be baked in, et cetera, et cetera. So, it's kind of the wave of the future. They say it's a great way of leveling up society and building communities and breaking up sort of the top-down leadership approach that society has had for many, many years. It's a really cool space, but I'm still learning a lot about it myself. And what I've decided to do, and I'm involved in 
like 15 or 20 really cool NFT projects right now. What I've decided to do is not focus so much on buying individual NFTs, what some might uh, disparagingly call JPEGs. It's a lot more than JPEGs, but more so I've decided to invest in really cool platforms that NFTs might sit on, or Mm -hmm. in fact, anything as regards infrastructure around the NFT space, because NFTs and Web3 is here to stay. So I'm more invested, if you will, in the picks and shovels as it relates to uh, the NFT space, rather than, as they say, chasing the price of gold up. So one example would be a company called CryptoSlam, which I was fortunate to get into very, very early with uh, a number of really great investors like Mark Cuban and Ashton Kutcher and Basically, this is a business that tracks data and information as it relates to the NFT space, including real-time pricing. It's kind of like a Bloomberg of NFTs, and that's a business that's growing. And we ended up not only investing, but they enlisted us with helping them on the town strategy side. We brought on a chief technology officer for them and a head of engineering, etc. So that's kind of my take. I'm much more interested right now in the infrastructure, although I have bought a number of individual NFTs. That's not my focus. So, you know, an obvious question that comes up is how do you have the time to do all this stuff? Because <laughs> we didn't even talk about something I'm, I want to turn to in a moment, which is so much of the nonprofit and the kind of amazing projects you've done around the status of women in leadership for 16 years and running. So let's start with the time question. How do you find the time to do all this stuff? So I wake up every morning and write down the 10 things that most absolutely need to get done. And I've never had a case where there's more than 10. Sometimes it's seven or eight. And I focus relentlessly on getting the must-haves done. And I cross each thing out once it's done. And then the rest Mm -hmm. of the day is gravy. (laughs) I'm able to dive into things that aren't as, let's say, time-sensitive or urgent. And I always seem to find a way to get through the day in a way that's organized and productive. One of the things I take great pride in is always having in my head all the various organizations I'm involved in so that even when I'm doing my urgent stuff, from time to time during my conversations, the business person I'm dealing with will say something that might apply really well to a company that I'm working on. And I'll say, as an aside, I need to introduce you to this and this founder because they can help your business in the following way. So I'm constantly thinking about all the different involvements I have, and nothing brings me greater joy, as we talked about earlier, than making the right connections and connecting the right dots. But it requires really having an approach to business and life, which is calm and steady, rather than creating unnecessary anxiety, and it seems to work. I do a lot of exercise as well. I exercise every single day, and I find that actually helps me a lot. I don't look at it as like, I don't have time to exercise. I find the exercise actually energizes me even more so and takes away any potential lingering anxiety and fears as the toxins come out of me. It is amazing about that. And it becomes something, once you get into it, you just don't want to stop. But what I'm hearing really is really good old fashioned discipline, you know, rigorous discipline, which... I don't know if that's a teachable skill or not. You could observe it. You could see other people doing it. People are now listening to you say this, and there's a lot of nodding heads now. But to stick with it, that's the thing. To stick with it day after day, month after month, year after year, that's where you start to see separation among people. But again, like some of the other things we talked about, it's not rocket science. not that you can't do it if you didn't want to do it, which is actually a very kind of democratic idea, you know, curiosity, courage being open to ideas, having discipline. These are things any one of us, all of us have done at various times. Any one of us could do all the time, 
or most of the time if we wanted to. I agree. Uh, which is really interesting. hundred percent. So let's talk about well, there's so much that you do in this space, but I want to talk specifically about the status of women in leadership. You've been doing this report for something like 16 years, which probably means pretty early on in your journey and running your own company, your own search firm, your own talent firm. What kind of triggered your desire to do this? And first of all, what is it? And where did the idea come from? And then we'll talk about what are we finding today in 2022? Right. So as I mentioned, I started my firm in 2004. Around 2006, two things resonated with me. One is an advertising executive came into Canada to give a speech, a very well-known advertising agent. And he basically said that women don't get to the top because they don't have the toughness. They don't have what it takes. And so he ended up being sent home pretty quickly, but it got me thinking. The other thing is Erwin Kotler, an important role model and mentor of mine, ended up in parliament. And I remembered that he was the first man on the women's caucus. And in his position as attorney general and minister of justice, he transformed our Supreme Court into the most gender representative in the world at the time. So it got me thinking about the status of women in business. So by law, every publicly traded company is required to disclose the compensation of their CEO, their CFO, and the next three or so most senior people in their organizations. So I thought, you know what, it'd be interesting to look at the 100 top publicly traded companies in Canada and just measure the percentage of women amongst the top five jobs. So the 500 or so top executives in Canada. So the first year I did this, 2006, I determined that 4.6% of the top jobs in Canada were held by women. I thought the number would be low. I didn't realize it would be that low. And I determined that I will continue to do this project until hopefully one day I work my way out of a job. So far, I haven't. The idea is to put a mirror to the corporate world in terms of the ironclad data of what the status of women is in leadership. And as the years went on, I used it as a platform for an even bigger discussion and more international discussion. And I began asking influencers from various walks of life to provide quotes and endorsements and comments in the front pages of my report. And I did that to amplify the discussion. So if you look at my last report, you'll see that there's comments from people ranging from Justin Trudeau to Deepak Chopra to Van Jones to Mark Cuban, Sheryl Sandberg, Lisa Milano, on and on and on. And to me, it's a really important issue. Study after study has shown that the more diversity around the business table, you know, you've seen there's McKinsey studies to that effect and Harvard Business Review studies that have the greater the business results. And it only makes sense because if you've got 10 70-year-old white guys sitting around the table, it's pretty different than if you have a diverse group of individuals because diversity breeds different kinds of perspectives and discussions. And that breeds greater creativity. And that, you know, in turn would logically, I think, drive better business results. But that's the business case. And if one needs the business case to affect change, then fine. But the more important aspect to me is the moral imperative of equality. Yeah, the business case is so overwhelming at this point. Yeah. You mentioned Harvard Business Review, and the academic literature has probably dozens, if not hundreds, of articles that touch on this. That's right. On this issue, what's the percent now? Do you know in the most yeah. recent report? Yeah, so I recently released my seventeenth annual report. The good news is the numbers have doubled. The bad news is we're still under ten percent. So yeah. you know, it's really plodding along pretty slowly. But it's pretty fascinating that I have all this data 
you know, for mm -hmm. 17 years, I'd be really curious to see, let's say, 10 years from now, what the numbers will look like. Yeah. Just as a curiosity, have you had any masters or doctoral students ask you for the raw data to do some analysis? Because it sounds like there's something good there that could be. I, I have had students ask me for information and have follow-up questions as it relates to the data, etc. I have. I, it's been quoted in government reports. The status of Women Canada has entered that into their records for a number of years. It's been, of course, covered a lot in the media. In fact, we've been quoted in a few books as well. And would you know the U.S. equivalent number? Is it also under 10%? It's, if there's an equivalent the, the, type of The stuff? numbers are very similar in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Now, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why this is the case. Mm -hmm. In your experience, are there one or two things that kind of are elevated or should be elevated so that maybe we, they could be targeted in a more aggressive fashion by various stakeholders? The more I think about it, the more I realize that it's like a circular thing. You need more women at the top in order to develop more women. So, you know, I've always been reluctant to endorse quotas, but I think there might be a need for quotas, even relatively modest quotas, to at least force the issue a little bit. You know, governments have been looking at how to integrate issues of childcare a little bit more expertly so that women may not fall off as quickly when they're mid-career, uh, which could cause issues in terms of the trajectory moving forward. So there's a number of different things, but even on the recruiting side, you know, if the number of individuals at the top, if the percentage is 90%, and you're doing a titles-based search, a LinkedIn-based search based on title on a senior project, you're going to end up recycling the same old, same old if you don't take a more sophisticated approach and a more diversity search kind of approach to the process, whether you're hiring external recruiters or doing it internally. And there is, I believe, a tendency for people to hire individuals who look like them and act like them. It's just a comfort level. So the issue yeah. needs to be forced, I think, in a much more aggressive way. You know, that's unfortunate because, again, I don't really love the concept of quotas, but we might be at that point. Yeah. One of the things that I think is useful, and you're doing this through this report, is transparency. Yes. Let the data speak. People need to know. Yes. Maybe some people say, well, of course, but I bet a lot of people are going to be surprised. Maybe people that are not really thinking about it all the time, and they'll say, less than 10%. How could that possibly be? That's right. I mean, that's just not right. And the same thing holds for compensation as well, doesn't yeah. it? Because there's still a big pay gap. I think the latest numbers I was seeing is women on average get paid 82% of what men get paid, which, you know, as a father of a daughter makes me furious and outraged. And transparency is one of the, it's not the only way, but it's one of the best ways. Absolutely. Do you know the name Lily Ledbetter by any chance? Say the name again. So Lily Ledbetter. I'll tell you the story of Lily Ledbetter. It's an interesting one. She worked at Goodyear Tire a number of years ago and was one of the only women, I guess it was on the plant floor. I might not be telling the story completely accurately, but she was one of the only women and sadly suffered a lot of harassment and abuse and was told that anyone who shares their compensation with their peers will get turfed, is my understanding. Bottom line is she gets a note from somebody letting her know what her male peers were making. And it was significantly lower. And she courageously decided to sue the company. And she was offered settlements all along the way. But bravely, she really hung in there. And the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States. And she lost the case 5-4 based on some technicalities, I think. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in the dissenting opinion, 
encouraged Lily to fight on. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Lily became friends. And uh, ultimately, when Barack Obama first came into the presidency, his first piece of legislation was the Lilly Ledbetter Equal Pay Act, with Lilly sitting by his side when he signed the legislation. So I've played a very small part in helping to raise money for the movie about Lilly Ledbetter, and I think it's already begun filming. So it's going to be a really, really cool That's exciting. Yeah, and we're also working on a follow-on impact project, working with corporates, so that it's not only an educational and inspiring movie, but we do impact work with uh, corporations moving forward. One other factor I would say is interesting to me, and I've touched on it in my earlier reports, but an amazing woman named Kathleen Taylor noticed it and isolated this point. Katie was the CEO of Four Seasons globally, mm-hmm. Four Seasons Hotels and Zorton. Yeah. I was at this gala event for a really wonderful organization called Move the Dial, which is dedicated to the advancement of women in leadership. And Katie came up to me and she says, I have a bone to pick with you. And she's, by the way, quoted in one of my reports. I said, what is that? She goes, have a seat. She said, (laughs) "I I love the work you're doing, the advocacy, presenting the statistics, but you're not isolating one point specifically enough. And that is the fact that even though the numbers are so low in terms of the percentage of women in top jobs, the percentage of women who are actually running businesses within corporations, I can only imagine is way, way smaller. So of the 10%, you have barely any women actually running businesses. And the issue with that is, so that means women are running very important roles like chief financial officer, chief marketing officer. They're not running businesses. So when it comes time for succession planning, For the CEO role, the board looks at these roles and says, well, we have to hire somebody who's running businesses. So she said, we really need to encourage corporations to encourage women to um, put their hands up for business line roles. And we ended up, Katie and I, writing an article in the Global Mail on the issue, and it got a bunch of attention. And the theme of one of my past reports, because of Katie's feedback, was on that issue Mm -hmm. specifically. So that's one other thing, as you ask me, what are some of the causes or things that are stunting women's growth within large corporations? That's another issue that's really important. Right. And in fact, that's something that usually is going to start earlier in a career when you're going up a line Mm -hmm. where you're maybe a first line manager, or you could be in a functional area, but at some point you get a little bit of uh, P&L responsibility and it's essential. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you real quick, and nothing should be quick because it's so interesting, but you're a musician yourself, and I just want to ask you, I think you write music, perhaps you play it as well. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, I'm not, nobody's shocked now hearing about curiosity <laughs> and the kind of this zigzag path, and it's not even zigzag, it's overlapping and intertwining, which is a different type of career model that you don't usually see. But yeah, tell us a little bit about the music. So we had a piano in our house. And I always gravitated towards the piano. I was always banging on the piano, like probably from the moment I could reach the notes. <laughs> and when I was five years old, I asked my mom if I could take lessons. And uh, she said, wow, like I was planning on getting lessons, but not this early. But if you want to, I'll give you them for sure. Like I'll bring you to the teacher. And so I took the piano pretty quickly and learned classical piano for about five years. But what happened was... As I continued to progress, I began getting all this written theory homework. And I'd asked my teacher if I could forgo the written homework because I found it tedious. I had enough homework as it was. My friends were outside playing street hockey, which was a big passion of mine. And I, here I am doing music homework. But she said, no, no, no. In order to progress, 
you're going to have to do the written work. So I quit. And I met a really talented musician when I was 16 years old up in the Laurentians at a camp. His name is Mitch Magnet. And he actually never took lessons. He's completely self-taught, genius. And I was taken with the way he played. So I asked him to teach me. And he taught me in a really interesting way, such that if you give me any musical book, any pop song, Billy Joel, Elton John, doesn't matter, with chords on top, I could play it immediately. And through that, and through banging on chords and improvising, that's a really great way to learn how to write music as well. That's how he wrote music. And I began writing music as well, partnered with him a lot. And yeah, so if you go on Apple Music or Spotify and you search for my name, you'll probably see about five or six songs that I wrote. Okay. Yeah. And it's a big passion of mine. I've written a song for every member of my family. There's a YouTube of me singing to my son at his bar mitzvah party, a song that I'm really proud of. And it was a very, very special moment. You'll see him running up on the stage and giving me a big hug. I performed and wrote the song with a really well-known artist named uh, Aon Clark, who's written, with, who's written and performed with many of the biggest artists in the world. It's a really great experience. So I love music, have a big passion for it. And I got involved in the music space and business as well, which has been a fun ride, and even in the philanthropic world. Right, yeah. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes so <laughs> people can uh, take a look. I don't know how to write music. I've never played an instrument, which I do regret. And I, it's not too late, though. It's not on my urgent list of top 10, but it's on, boy, I should really get around to it. But I do write some poetry. And uh, so you reminded me of that because at our daughter's wedding not that long ago, I wrote a poem to her and her husband uh, that I read. Uh, That's so that was cool. kind of the, that was a speech of the dad. And, That's so uh, nice. Well, we should collaborate. Send me some of the poems. I'll put some music to it and we'll, we'll, we'll put it on uh, iTunes. <laughs> That's pretty funny. You got a deal because you, one of the things you taught me earlier is when the door opens, you grab it. <laughs> <There> you <go. laughs> so Jay, great conversation. One final question to wrap up uh, for you. And, you know, you've been giving advice at various sources. We're going along, but this last question about advice is advice to yourself. If you could magically go back to when you were 20 years old and go up to the uh, you know 20 year old Jay and say, you know, if there's one thing you want to do, it's one thing you want to know, it's one thing you want to think about, it's one thing you want to you want to avoid, you know, what would that little bit of advice be to yourself when you were a young man? I don't know if it's advice, but I'd say to myself, it's going to be all right. Enjoy the journey. Yeah. Enjoy the journey. Yeah. It's going to be all right. That's been in some songs, actually, that line, for maybe for a good reason. <laughs> I just recorded an episode very recently with the CEO of Coursera, which is you know, the world's biggest online educator. I just did a series of courses for them that, that launched. And uh, he said something similar. He said that he wished he'd have more joy and less worry early in his career. Because it, you know, it, it was all right. It worked out. I mean, it doesn't always work out the way that things have worked out for you or for him or a bunch of other people, but it works out. And uh, he had the same advice. So there you go. Beautiful. Jay Rosenweig, thank you so much for being on the SIDCast. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. And check your inbox for my poetry on the way. I love that. Well, good talking to you. I really enjoyed it, too. Take care, man. Take care, Jay. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. 
The Sitcast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.